to the Exploring Washington State podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. So today I'm sitting here and we're doing something different. I'm actually in person with somebody. Um, I'm here with Mike Reichner, <laughs> uh, the owner of Purple Purple Haze Lavender Farm. I'm laughing because if you guys knew the tech challenges we had to get this going, you'd be <laughs> laughing too. Mike, welcome. Thank you for being part of the show Thanks. and being so patient today. Thanks. Thanks very much. Why don't you give us a little bit of the backstory of Purple Haze Lavender Farm? Okay. Starting way back. 26 years ago. Let's go. Okay. Uh, well, and I've told this story many times uh, to people that ask that same exact question. You know, what, what, how'd you get started? Um, first of all, I was a government employee of Washington State Park Ranger uh, looking for a place to live outside the park because I'd been living off the government for almost 20 years at the time. And um, so my wife and I looked around, looked around. We finally, finally, after looking at hundreds of places, we finally found a place that we thought we could build a house and, and move up. And, and so we bought this place, just a bare cow pasture. I tell people it was barbed wire and cow patties. That's all that was here. And uh, we built our house, and then I went to a meeting um, with some community folk that were trying to get a, get a personality back to the community, and they were pushing uh, folks to maybe consider growing herbs commercially, uh, specifically lavender, because it wasn't being grown in the United States at the time. It was mostly produced in France, and France was having problems producing it um, because of some immigration problems. So I came home that night, and I announced to my wife that we were going to be lavender farmers. She was just thrilled, of course, as you can imagine. So that next spring, I planted 19 lavender plants. And we found out which ones we liked, and which ones made it through the winter. And that fall, I think I planted about 250 plants. Okay. We've got thousands and thousands. As you can see, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands now. Um... And then that next spring, I put another 200 in. Of course, that's just that little plot down by the house. And I decided that I would allow the public to come in and pick their own lavender bundle. And my ranger buddies laughed me off the face of the planet because they thought, oh, God, here goes this big thug, and now he's going to be a lavender farmer and let people come to his farm and know that he's going to let him plant lavender. Well, I got, I just happened to get really good press from the local press. Mike Reichner's going to allow people to come and you pick. And um, it just took off. Um, we were able to develop a website. I think that was our third year. And we start, we built a little primitive website. And um, the public was just getting into the computer scene. I was lucky on the leading edge. I think I was. I think we were really lucky because there was nobody else doing something like this. You know, you had you pick uh, berries, had you pick apples, you know, lots of different you pick deals, but nobody was offering you pick lavender flowers. Yes, there was no lavender farms anywhere in the United States except for a couple places down in California. So I was new to the region, and uh, we embraced people and um, made it a happy place to come. We give everybody a little pair of toy scissors and a 
seven-inch twist tie, and whatever they could get in that was five bucks. And now we sell thousands and thousands and thousands of bundles every year now that way. And I like the idea of people harvest paying me to harvest my crop. <laughs> it's worked out pretty well. So um, now, of course, um, 26 years later, um, we've been discovered. Um, got We were fortunate, again, to be the new kid on the block. Nobody else was doing it. Uh, now, of course, there's about 30 lavender farms in the area. Um, so I'm not the new kid on the block anymore. I'm kind of the granddaddy. Uh, but the competition's got a little stiffer, too. Um, and I think we've evolved over the years to make us more attractive than everybody else by embracing people, being out there, making people relax, having people, making people have fun and take home memories. And that's, that's really kind of our uh, go-to plan is giving folks memories they can take home, tell their friends, tell their family, and uh, ten down, ten years down the line, go. Remember when we went to Purple Haze? Let's go to Pur let's go back there and see if it's the same. We've got people that have come here every year since I started. I've wow. ha I've had people come in with hats, Purple Haze hats that we sell, wearing the original hat from 1996 with those kind of memories. Do you remember me? How often do we hear that? You remember me, Mike? Remember me? Sure, sure I do. <laughs> Gone through a few, few faces here. But uh, um, yeah, we want people to have fun when they come here. We don't like rules. Um, we trust that people are gonna behave themselves. A lot of times that's come back and bit me. But uh, for the most part, you know, people are really, really appreciative that we're here and treat us, treat us like, like we, everybody wants to be treated. <clears throat> when you started, did you name it Purple Haze from the very beginning? From the very beginning. So what was the inspiration for Purple <laughs> Haze Lavender Farm, the, the name? Well, I'm in my mid-70s. So if we do our math, I was kind of a... Well, let me see. I was a hippie. And Jimi Hendrix was kind of my idol, you know? I mean, really. I could do air, air guitar as well as anybody. Um, but he was kind of my idol. And so we sat around and brainstormed for a long time, trying to come up with an appropriate name. That one that would be catchy. Deep Purple, that was another one. Okay. Deep Purple. Um, but Purple Haze really stuck. Um, so we adopted that, uh, Purple Haze Lavender, we got a, got a trademark for it, and I wanted Jimmy's blessing. Of course, he was gone by then. So I was able to finagle around and get his dad's number at the time, reached his dad, and talked to him, and he said, I think my son would be proud to lend his credence to your farm. And so I had the big stamp of approval. And after that, we just rocked and rolled, literally. And Jimmy has really left an left a imprint on this farm. He's, uh, he's everywhere over there inside the store. I mean, you go into the bathroom, he's looking at you. <laughs> and and uh, um, we've heard a lot of people singing Purple Haze here before. And our annual Lavender Weekend, we call it Purple Haze Days now, D-A-Z-E. And uh, Jimmy is probably the most popular artist to be covered 
down at the at the stage with all the bands. Everybody wants to cover Jimmy. So um, we're just real, real happy that we can carry on that legacy now for 26 years. So how long have you been doing Purple Haze Days? Purple Haze Days was up. Okay. We, we were part of the Lavender. I started the Lavender Festival. And we rock and rolled with that for probably 20 years. And then we felt like getting a little more independent, so we dropped out of the Lavender Festival, gave away the name to a group of people, gave away the money to a group of people, and decided to have our own party. So I think about four years ago, four or five years ago, we rebranded um, that weekend to Purple Haze Days and uh, let the world know it. Had a bunch of shirts made up. Um, was all over the internet, and it's just been a huge, huge success. That been really, really good to us. The farm's about seven acres. Seven and a half, yeah. Seven and a half acres. Mm-hmm. How many plants are in production on the, on the farm? Well, that's a revolving answer, because every year we pull a significant amount of plants and replant. Okay. Um, it's, it's well into the thousands, um, and that could vary by a thousand uh, every year. So probably 8,000 over there. My, I gave our son, who's up on the hill up there, that section of plants, so that took away a couple thousand. He wanted to be a farmer for a while. <laughs> he's, a, he's a high school teacher. He's not, he's not so enamored by it now. Um, and then we have these plants out here that we lease to the farm um, on a yearly basis. So, uh, you know, again, it's, it's around 10,000. Um, it, it, you plant a different variety that's smaller, you're going to have more plants in, that, in those sure. rows. You plant a big uh, oil-producing plant like Grosso, and it's much larger, so you're going to have fewer plants per row. So it really is a, really is a variance every year. How long are the plants? So you said you pull pull them fairly regularly. Mm-hmm. How how long are they good for, if you will, for for from from yeah. a production standpoint? Yeah. Um, well, it, it it varies from variety to variety, of course. But if uh, if you were just to give it a thumbprint, it's around eight years. Okay. Eight to nine years. If you're growing a plant for oil, they don't have to be pretty. So they last a little longer, you know. But if you're growing it for the bundle itself, which is what a lot of my our buyers are, they buy those dried bundles. The stems have to be long, and the color has to be pretty verdant. Brilliant. Uh, so those you can get eight years out of those, seven and a half. Um, uh, the oil producers just a little bit longer. The stems continually get shorter and shorter every year. Okay. So uh, you get about, I'd say, eight years. Okay. And we're all organic, so we don't use any pesticides, any herbicides. Um, Every row is hand-hoed. I mean, we do this all by hand. Um, Every plant is hand-harvested with a little curved sickle. One man, our farm manager, harvests every single one of our tens of thousands of plants by hand with a one-foot curved sickle. Uh, 
all by himself. He can literally walk down a row harvesting these plants with a team of people behind him, usually high school girls, bundling them up, putting a rubber band on them, sitting them on top of the bush. And he's walking while they're bundling them up, putting them on top. And he's got five girls following him down this row. It's a process that's... There's a little flick on our website that's showing him harvesting you should look at. Okay. Um, but he is a magic man. And then he goes back in the wintertime, thousands of plants again, and he shears every plant with the weed eater. Every single plant, he walks down the row and trims way back with the weed eater so they don't get too leggy, you know. Um, it's labor-intensive. It's labor-intensive. Earlier, before we started recording, you were talking yeah. about the organic aspects of, uh-huh. of your farm. I'd like to kind of circle back to that because mm-hmm. you, you take great pride in this, obviously. I do. That your your farm is... Certified organic. Certified organic, but almost, you know, the word I'm looking for is kind of like full circle. Everything everything has a... Sustainable. Thank you. Yep. Share with us a little bit more. You were you were telling me earlier about what you were doing with the stocks and all of that, and I, I, I think that was pretty fascinating. Yeah. Well, um... I've been I've been committed to organic um, from the get go, and I was the only farm that was committed to organic. Uh, now everybody's on board, but uh, it's uh, it's it's paperwork heavy, you know. However, the reward that you get from being organic is so profound that there's no denying it. We use every part of the plant, every single part of the plant. So if we're distilling a certain variety, which we do a lot of distilling, um, you'll suck the oil out of the plant, and then you have what you have left is just kind of mushy uh, flowers and stems that you go, now what the heck? Well, I'm a mulching fool. I like to mulch, and I like to mulch with everything, and I've tried every possible mulch there is. And so we started mulching our orchards with these stems. And we've probably put uh, several feet of stems on our orchard over the year. Those stems, as they've been cooked, will settle down into the dirt and just turn that dirt to a wonderful black compostable um, soil. Um, So we don't throw anything away. We use the wastewater from the distillation process. Um, We bottle that up in five-gallon jugs, and we sell that hydrosol to cosmetic companies. They add that to their lotions, to their facial works, and uh, it's got an unbelievable value on the market, the wastewater from the distillation process. So nothing is wasted. After we get to a certain amount of of hydrosol where we know we can't store it or sell it, then we'll run it underground out to the orchard and use it to water the orchard. So it's um, it's a great uh, full meal deal. We, we try to do everything where um, the earth actually appreciates it. And we've been told, I think I told you earlier, that by our organic inspector, that we're the model of sustainability in the organic world. Um, and in about about 2008, 
It's still you can still find it on the USDA website. And about that time, I wrote a grant to the USDA to the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Arm of the USDA. That's called SARE to shorten it uh, to experiment with mulching our fields with oyster shells because we have a lot of oysters around here. So we got the grant to the USDA. In fact, we were the poster child to the USDA that year. They put us on the cover of their magazine, Purple Haze. And um, what we were trying to do was raise the quality of the uh, essential oil in the plant um, to a, just a higher quality. It's hard to explain, gen- generally speaking. It didn't work. It didn't, uh, it didn't raise the quality. But what it did do is it negated the need for weeding. The weeds couldn't grow through those sharp oyster shells. We put them on about a foot deep, whole shells a foot deep, all around the plants and down the rows. Negated the need for weeding. The weeds didn't have to, didn't have to, couldn't push through it. Negated the need for ever having to irrigate because the sun couldn't get to the soil. And those Plant, those shells broke down over a period of years and actually raised the pH or sweetened the soil um, because of their composition. Uh, so it was really a triple successful um, deal for us, even though we didn't achieve our goal in raising the quality of the oil. Are you still doing that now? Or are you, yeah. You're still using theirs? Yeah, there's, a, there's an interpretive sign that we had made over there that we put up. The shells now... These are big oyster shells. They have now broken down into little chips over the last 10, 15 years. So they've just, just like the stems when you use them, it goes right down into the soil. Um, A really neat example of what you can use, uh, that local mulch that at the time was free. They they wanted to get rid of their shells. You'd be surprised at the price of oyster shells now because a lot of people want to mulch whatever they have with oyster shells. It's pretty. They're white, stark white. Right. So that background of white against my purple flowers. How, did the sun reflect off of that? Oh, wow. They just bleached them out white. But, and it actually, well, see, that was my idea at the time, raising the heat units to the plant, thus increasing the, the quality of the oil. Okay. It didn't really help that it much. It didn't help. No. But uh, we still sell all every bit of oil we can distill is gone every year. So... I want to go back to the water, uh-huh. the wastewater. <laughs> that, how did you find out about that process? I mean, did you you didn't come up with that idea, did you? I mean, how did the distillation yeah, process? The, no, not the distillation, but the 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 wastewater that's left over. Now you're oh. you're 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 selling it off. Yeah, hydrosol is what it's called. Yeah, how, how did you how did you come about with that um, idea? Um, well, no, I did not come up with it. Somebody come up with it. Uh, and it's been used for years. Hydrosol has been a part of the of the ingredient process for like personal care goods for years and years and years. And the reason is typically is that it's so much less expensive than the actual essential oil itself. Okay. Um, but like I said, our overflow goes out into the orchard after we fill up so many five gallon jugs that we know we can't sell any more than that. 
we just water the orchard with it. That's so, that's, that's, that's so yeah, and it smells. Circle. The orchard smells pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> I bet it does. When that when that distillation plant, did you see my distillation plant over there? Yes, that, I did. That's a great big stainless steel structure. Yes, that's a one point two million BTU still. If you understand British thermal units, that baby rocks and rolls when we fire it up. It makes the ground tremble when it's. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, I, and luckily, I got Jose trained on it, so I don't have to do it. And he doesn't like it either, but it's very safe. It's inspected every year. But when that baby's cooking, um, the air is just filled with the steam uh, that just overpowers you. I mean, it's so. You just get this euphoric feeling that, you know, I can sit there all day long. You should wrap it in a, in a fake Marshall amp. <laughs> if, it's rumbly, if the ground's rumbling, you could, you could have like, That's right. like a Jimmy. Good, <laughs> good idea. Good idea. Um, but, yeah, that's uh, and we do distillation um, demonstrations for the public. And we do some um, contract distilling. People don't have a, a still, so they bring, bring a truckload of it out here. And we'll do contract distilling. We actually have three stills. I started out with a seven and a half gallon copper still. I mean, that's a tabletop still. Right. And I would, I I was so proud of that when we first started. Um, And I would, I was lecturing across the United States and Canada then about the virtues of agritourism. I got burned out on that too, traveling, traveling, traveling. But it was exciting at the time. But I'd shipped that little still full of buds to Cape Cod, for instance. And it'd be there waiting for me. So while I'm doing my talk, I fired up this little still and I fill the room with this fragrance, you know, and talk about people coming to the farm and selling memories. That's always been my mantra. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get people hooked on them on just the fragrance of lavender. Um, so I stopped doing that, and then we got a 55-gallon stainless steel food quality still on wheels, and we started distilling that. Oh, this is a, this is a beautiful still. Oh, a beautiful still. And it would take about two weeks to distill all of our oil-bearing plants. And then I had the opportunity to buy this still that we have now. And that holds about 800 pounds of flowers every time you fill it. And it's on wheels, so we hook it up to the tractor, drag it out to the field where the plants themselves are, and throw it right into what it's called a retort. That's what holds the flowers. We throw all the flowers right in there, stomp them down, drag it back to the still, hook her up, let's rumble. So I'm at the point where I don't want a bigger still. Uh, that we can we can usually distill everything in about three days. Everything on the farm. With I that, don't think with you need bigger, a bigger still. We don't need a bigger still. Three days right of now. labor, you're good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And Jose's good at it. <laughs> so when somebody comes to visit you at the farm, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that? As I walked around earlier today, you know, the farm's closed to the public. You, you, sure. but you let people. We encourage. We encourage people to wander around. So that's was awesome. Sure. But I wasn't able to go into the store because it's closed. That's what we have a downtown store. <laughs> okay, so let's let's talk about let's talk about your store and your products. Sure. And what sort of goods are you guys producing that you think we should know about? Well, when 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 one thinks of lavender, most people think of perfume. Most people think of stinky perfume, and that's 
the the largest ingredient to all perfumes is lavender essential oil. That lavender essential oil is used in more perfumes than any other essential oil. So you've got a market already. So we started, you know, we made um, perfume, lotion, liquid soaps, spritzers, yada yada, all these personal care items, facial milk. And then we kind of wanted to blossom out a little bit where somebody else, other people weren't doing. So we made uh, a lavender salad dressing. Everybody went, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> That's going to taste like perfume. Um, and now it's in stores all over the Northwest. We haven't gone outside the Northwest. <clears throat> it's just a, a real hit. That's the only thing we use on our slab of salmon on the barbecue is purple haze salad dressing. I'll give you a jar before you go today. Well, let me stop you. Yeah. You started by saying people are going, no, 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 to the, sure. to the salad dressing. Sure. And now you're telling me you're in stores All in the over. Northwest. Oh, yeah. How did you convince the public? I mean, how did you how did you change that perception to get people to try it? Well, first of all, you have to get the buyers of the stores to try it. Okay. That's how you get on the shelf. I found out. And dealing with these big stores is real tough. It's not my favorite thing to do. First of all, you have to convince the buyers. Then you have to do something that leaps off the shelf when you see it. Okay. So here's the micro story for that. Sunset Magazine's doing an article on us some years ago, 15 years ago. And the writer brought his wife with him, who was a painter. She loved to paint. So she said, well, I'm just going to sit up here on the porch while he interviews you and do a little painting. So it was about an hour interview. We walked around the farm. They did a wonderful article on us. I think we've been in there five or six times now. And we came back, and I said, well, let's see your painting. And she showed me this painting, and it was just beautiful. And I said, can I buy that from you? Can I buy that painting? Well, I don't really suck. Let me buy it. Let me buy it. I forget how much it was real reasonable. And I said, I want unlimited use of that painting if, if I buy it. Oh, yeah, no problem. We wrote it. And that became our label on our salad dressing. Oh. And it is so vibrant, this label is, you can't help but pick it up out of a bunch of salad dressings on the shelf. You can't help it. I'm, I'll show you today before you leave. So people were forced to buy it because of the beauty of the label. And it just caught on. And now it's it's a big seller everywhere. I mean everywhere. Okay. So it, we we made it so you you had to you had to take it. Okay. Um so that was kind of the start of our culinary line. Uh now I guess it wasn't ice cream was the start of our culin culinary line. We sell tens of thousands of ice cream cones every summer. And I mean that's no exaggeration. I think we have seven different flavors of lavender ice cream. Okay, so I'm going to stop you. <laughs> okay. Two, two questions about the ice cream. Sure. First, are you making the ice cream or are you having somebody make it for you? We're having a, uh, uh, we're having a contracted through an iconic ice cream company. Okay. Yes. And then seven. how do you get seven flavors out of lavender? <clears throat> lavender white chocolate, mm. lemon lavender sorbet. Okay. And on and on and on. Okay. Um, lavender mint. 
What you're doing is just taking an ice cream that is really good and putting a little piquant twist to it by adding lavender. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't deny the overwhelming wonderfulness of our ice cream. You can't deny it. People will stand in line 100 feet long to buy an ice cream at a cone at our Well, place. at the time of COVID, though, they were six feet apart. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. That's true. But, but That's you're true. telling me That's 100 true. feet, 100 yeah. you Jam them in there. Two tills running. I mean, off the charts. The ice cream company this last year, I, f- I forget what we made last year in August on ice cream. It's not important, but it was significant. Uh, we surpassed that by 300% this year during the pandemic. Really? Busiest ice cream August that in 26 years we've ever had during a pandemic. Now, what's the deal here? And the the new the ice cream guy, it, it's elevated ice cream in, in uh, Port Townsend, iconic ice cream place. Been around for years and years and years. But they just sold out. Julian David sold out last year to this young couple. And usually, you, you normally would go by the previous year's sales on how much you have to make for this year. And it didn't work out this year. We were hundreds and hundreds of percent beyond our best year ever. So he was kind of frightened, but really happy. <laughs> really happy. But that, that's kind of where our culinary line started. So I delved into it. Hey, this is going to work. You know, they like my salad dressing. So we decided to make a mustard, a Herbs de Provence mustard, our proprietary herbs, our mixture, and put it in mustard. And we had this wonderful mustard company make it for us. And two years ago, it won uh, the Mustard World Championships. Out of 1,500 mustards, it got the gold medal. Wow. Best mustard, best herbal mustard on the planet. Did sales go crazy after that? Best mustard on the planet. So that kind of worked out. And then we started making our proprietary herbs to Provence. We sell that by the pound to um, country stores. By the pound, they, you know, they sh- take a big shift out of there. I should give you some of that before you go to. You'd love it on a pork loin. Roll the pork loin in it on the barbecue. I'm a big griller, so I like everything on the on the bob. Um, uh, just on and on and on. Culinary lavender in a little tin like that. We raise a beautiful, beautiful blue variety called um, um, purple velvet. Oh, Jesus. I'm having a senior moment. Royal Velvet. <laughs> that when dried, it doesn't lose any of its pop. It just is gorgeous. So again, it's something you look at. Man, that's got to be good because it looks so good. So again, we're just giving people memories. And we sell so much stuff here. At the, and before the COVID, we'd have free samples of everything. You know, Right. Couldn't do it this year, so people were really rolling the dice this year when they bought something. But when you show them the gold medal uh, and you show them the reviews that we've got, it, it pretty much seals it, you know. But culinary is kind of an experiment, or it was. It's not so much anymore. It's uh, it's at the big time. We sell, um, we make um, lavender sugar to use in baking. We use a lemon lavender pepper that we make, that we sell all over the continent. Um, it's just on and on and on. Um, it's it's really probably now 
as valuable as the as the personal care products, the culinary line. So, how many products do you guys have in your pro- your overall mm. product line? Boy, well, it's it's close to a hundred. Wow. Yeah, um, because we we also have a lot of products that we consign. Uh, lavender uh, re- neck relaxing, you know, heat where you can pop in the microwave. Mm-hmm. Lavender masks, um, lavender dog kerchiefs, um, and on and on, on and, on. and on. Yeah, purple haze, purple haze, purple haze. So uh, it's it's significant when you figure that we started with three products. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a, been an, an, an evolution for us. <laughs> and you have a store, a physical store in downtown Squim. We have a right in the core of Squim, what they call the Golden Block. We've had that since 1998. So we're the longest tenant in the Golden Block down there. And it's open seven days a week, uh, year-round. I think the only days we're closed is Eastern Christmas. Um, so they rock and roll down there from 10 to 5. Um, right in the core of Squim, you really, you and your wife should stop by there. It's you can get a get an idea of what the this store here looks. They're almost twins. The the okay. farm store and the downtown store are almost twins. The farms the the downtown store is really kind of a front for what really goes on in our space down there. Because behind the wall of the store is our shipping department and our manufacturing area. And that's where the rock and rolling is going on. Making and shipping and making and shipping. It's a bustling um, bustling hub back there. So the store pays the rent and uh, keeps it nice so people can still buy our products in the off season, but uh, backstage is where it's really happening. Okay. What, so the farm's open Primarily Memorial Day to Labor Day? Is that kind of the... For the most part, uh, we started opening on weekends during April. But seven days a week, 10 to 5, starts Memorial Day weekend. And then that runs through Labor Day. And then um, we typically close the farm. Now, this year, uh, for some reason, during this year, people keep coming. So uh, next year, I think I'm going to be inclined to stay open maybe a month after Labor Day, because the cars just, I pay, people are just crazy to get out, and the cars just keep coming. Um, our plant sales really start, oh, mid-March, where we start shipping plants. So you guys sell plants, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've got our own propagator. In fact, I saw him here yesterday. He's a famous propagator. He's made a self-made uh, famous propagator. Travels the world uh, um, helping people get started in this industry. But he comes and takes thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of cuttings every fall, raises them through the winter in his greenhouses, and they're ready in spring to ship or um, sell right off the farm down here. Our shipper will ship... I'm, I'm in the thousands again, probably thousands of orders of plants around the world. Wow! All around, yeah, we're certified uh, all around. We can ship our plants everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we sell plants. How many varieties of plants do you have on the? Well, let me let me ask like two questions. Yeah. How many varieties of plants do you have on the farm? Okay. And then, how many varieties of plants do you sell? Okay. They're, it's probably about the same. 
because we want people to experience that plant before they buy the little one. Okay. I want people to go over and take a little flower off. Mm, I like that. That's real sweet. Or, well, that's a little too camphorous for me. Um, oh, this is, I like this one. Well, it's right over there. So I think the, the reasonable answer would be, and it'll vary too. Okay. Um, depending on which ones I pulled, which ones I put back. But I think about 10, nine or 10 varieties is what we sell and grow commercially. We've also got a whole bunch of demonstrative plants that we don't sell commercially, either because there's a patent on it that you can't reproduce it or that they're hard to grow here. So I want something that's going to grow in our region, you know, and do well. So I think probably nine or ten varieties are are good. And we have a, a top three that we can't produce enough of that people love. I was mentioning that Royal Velvet. That's mm-hmm. just, it's just so gorgeous. And it's, and it's one of the hardest ones to raise. Oh, it's, of course it is. Once you get established, once it gets established, it's fine. But taking a cutting for Royal Velvet, it's, it's a royal roll of the dice. Okay. Agritourism. I think I made that term up. Okay. I, I hope I did. Because it's become kind of a buzzword. Oh. <laughs> and, and and the other buzzword of the year is pivot. We all. <laughs> sorry, I joke. In an earlier episode, I mentioned how much I dislike that word. Agritourism, though. Yeah. Yeah. Giving families the opportunity to go make memories. Hands on. Yep. You, earlier, before we hit the record button, we were talking about the farm's chickens. Sure. I'd like you to re. re recount that story sure. that you shared to me. Sure. But how does, in your opinion, Purple Haze position itself as this place for a family or anyone to go? But, you know, you, you take the kids there. Let's talk about the chickens, but let's talk about some of the other things there, too. But let's sure. start with the chickens. Okay. Okay. Um well, the, the chickens initially was kind of a selfish deal. We wanted fresh eggs. <laughs> and uh, and those are happy chickens, so you get a lot of eggs out of them. In fact, we have so many eggs that we we sell tons of them out of the store. Oh, okay. But uh, you'd be surprised how many kids have never seen a chicken and had uh, never known that an egg came from those chickens. We gather them all the time over there right when there's a crowd there for the entertainment value. But my wife makes some pancakes all every summer. And we allow or encourage the kids to feed the chickens a piece of pancake. And those chickens will take it right out of your hand. You don't have to throw it. You don't have to drop it. You hold it out. They'll peck it right out of your hand. Uh, and they get real they get real selfish about the pancakes, too. They are jostling for a position. But that's that's the kind of stuff that I want people to take away from my place. I want them to take some products also. But I want them to take away the fact that their kids were able to interact with my chickens here. Um, we also have bunnies. And I have a rent-a-bunny program. Um, we have a bunny hutch that's in the shop now. But we have a bunny hutch, or a bunny rental program, where I'll get the 4-H'ers to give me a pair of bunnies in the spring, and then those bunnies will mate. Then I'll give the male bunny back. So all you have is a little female bunny in there, and then just around Memorial Day, between Memorial Day and July 4th, they'll have a litter of bunnies. Oh my, 
Is that an attraction? So we've got bunnies hopping all around in there. The kids get to feed them carrots. Um, they feed them chunks of grass. It's just a huge attraction. At the end of the season, I give those bunnies back to the people that gave them to me at the start of the year because I don't want bunnies in the winter. So they get all these free bunnies that I raised for them that they can use as they like. And next year I get another pair, and we've done that for years and years and years. Uh, uh, and it's just a hit. The bunnies are a hit. Um, all the different things that I've done here are, I mean, just literally are to give people something they can take home that doesn't cost them anything. My experimental garden over there where I grow all of our vegetables out of hay bales every year. Plant seeds right in the hay bales. My vegetables are pumpkins and squash and cucumbers and everything grow right out of those hay bales. And as those plants eat those hay bales up, they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And at the end of the year, after we've harvested all our vegetables, there's a little pile of compost where that hay bale used to be. And we put that in our gigantic compost pile, and that's what we use the next year to fertilize a lot of our decorative plants. So once again, full circle. Full circle. Wow. That's what we're trying to do. Trying to it's a sustainable pro project for me. I I pride myself in what we do here, you know. Um, it's just that I'm getting tired. <laughs> sure. Also, before we're always referencing before this conversation, sure. because we had technical issues. Remember, uh -huh. everyone? Technician um, was fumbling. The guest house, yeah, which started as your home when you bought when you bought the farm. Yeah, you mentioned that you built the front porch <clears throat> to take advantage of the sunsets. Absolutely. Um, you also mentioned that the 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 store building. The, the, we call it the drying shed. The drying yeah. shed's porch facing the sunset, facing, facing the sunset. west. So you've obviously taken a lot of pride and care yeah. in the positioning of this farm. Yeah. But the guest house is available for rent, correct? Yeah. it's uh, Well, uh, you better book it early. Uh, uh, we're, we're now really reaching out to, uh, to quilting groups and Audubon Society people to try to um, get it used more in the winter. Because as you can see, it's pretty beautiful during the winter here, mm -hmm. too. During the summer, that the farmhouse is booked every day. Every single day. In fact, up till now, during the pandemic, people are still trying to get away. So it's still pretty much booked up now, even into October and into November, actually. But yeah, that was our, that was our house. That was my first uh, attempt at building anything. Okay. Um, and I just, I did, you know, obviously I wasn't a framer or anything, but um, I did the fireplace and I did the hand mantle. I did that all by hand. I did all the tile work. I did the, the fish, climbing a fish ladder up the railing upstairs. And it's little tweaks that people remember when they go there. They're, God, look at that. Somebody put fish up there. It was hard. But uh, we, I love that home. But you're living in a glass house over there. Literally in the summertime, and I, I maxed it to the code as much glass as I could put in it because I never envisioned it in a million years I'd have tens of thousands of people around me. I remember one incident. I was just in the early years, and I, you notice there's a lot of glass in the house. Mm -hmm. And I came down to make coffee, and I mean, I was naked in the morning making coffee, standing with my coffee cup. Just done, just done. Looking out and admiring my farm, going, man, this is so cool. And I see a little glint, and I go, 
What's that? I'm up by the drying shed, and I'm looking up there, and looking up there, and there's a woman up there with a telescopic lens taking a picture of the farmhouse, and I'm standing there buck naked in the window. That's a, that's a memory. Yeah, there's a memory. There's a memory, there's a memory for her. I've had, I've had people before come in and say, which way's the bathroom here? And I, you know, seniors that are, look a little confused anyway. It's right over there. And they come in. I say, by the way, sir, this is a private residence. You know, there's, this isn't a public restroom area. Oh, that's happened dozens of times. That's kind of what encouraged us to move across the street. <laughs> it was time to let other people start enjoying the farmhouse, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a real nice revenue stream. I mean, it's been been uh, helped a whole bunch with the mortgage. That's great. So, yeah. So we really, and, and, and for the most part, uh, we've had no real issues. I, I, one little story about that. Um, one of our housekeepers quit. They got retired or something. And so my general manager's daughter thought she might want to clean the house. We give them 75 bucks for every time they clean it. Be a good revenue for a high school kid. So Vicky, my general manager, was going to take her down and show her how to clean the house after this group left. So they go down to the house and they open the door. And it was a bunch of college kids from Southern California. They opened the door and... It's a table just like this, and there it was a foot of garbage on the table. Um, old fish carcasses, shrimp shells, oh. clam shells, stinking, nasty. They all of their they fried everything. They just opened the back door and just threw the grease out onto the lawn and onto the back deck. It was a just a horrific disaster. By the way, they didn't get their damage deposit back. But uh, um, Kaylee at the time, the girl said, you know, Mom, I don't think I'm really interested in cleaning the farmhouse. <laughs> but, th but that was just an a, a awful example. And it, it didn't happen very often, but that was a real eye-opener there. That was a real eye-opener. These kids, kids that are entitled kids, you know, rich kids, um, just didn't care if they lost the damage deposit, you know. So, they probably thought they were having a good laugh at somebody else's expense. Right, somebody else's expense. So I, that that doesn't happen often, but um, we've had some, we've had some over the years, twenty six years. You know, you're bound to have you're bound to have stories. Stories. I, I one time I was I was being interviewed by Wazoo, the ag department at Wazoo, standing out in the driveway over there, and my farm manager at the time came up and said, oh, "Mike, um, we've got a little issue over here at the chicken pen." You better come over. And I said, well, right, I'm in the middle of an issue. She said, well, you better come over. So I ran around the corner of the chicken pen, and my Jack Russell that I had at the time, Gordy, was at random killing chickens one after another after another just for fun. And oh. I finally got to him. There was one chicken left to kill all the chickens oh but one. People everywhere, you know, people everywhere. Memories. <laughs> Memories. <laughs> I mean, just stuff like that, you know, that uh, that I remember. Um as being an incident that I'd rather I'd rather not have this re a reoccurring deal, but most of the people, most of the time, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful lifestyle, and that's why people want to purchase it because the lifestyle more than makes up for the craziness. Craziness. It's uh, you know a great place to raise your kids. I raised my kids over there. Um, one of them stayed local and was now a teacher, but uh, great way to raise kids. So on the porch at the drying shed, yeah, is a wood carving. Oh yeah, 
Jerry. And Jerry. <laughs> and when when Chris wrote the original article for us about your about your farm, mm-hmm. that photo caught my eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you shared a story with me. It, it has really nothing to do with the farm. No. But I think it's a great story. No. And I, I'm going to ask you to share it. To, we'll wrap up with... Sure. Well, actually, we'll wrap up. That'll be the last story, and i got a couple other questions for you. Okay. But I'd like you to share that story, because I yeah. personally think it's awesome. Well, I do, too. <laughs> uh, my bride and I, we, we typically, up until just a couple years ago, would spend the whole winter in our place in Mexico. We had a house down there. So we were all locked and loaded in our car with, we were probably towing a trailer and rooftop carrier and a cargo carrier on the back and right to the top, our dogs, everything. And we're headed down Interstate 5 toward our house in Baja. And we get down around um, Eugene, Oregon, and there must be an accident ahead or something that stopped all four lanes of traffic and they're just barely moving, just barely moving. Bumper to bumper, moving, moving, moving. And a figure over to the right of us caught uh, Rosie's eye. And it's this guy standing in the back of this um, pickup truck uh, carving, full-size human carving of Jerry Garcia. And Rosie immediately said, I've got to have that. Really, honey? Well, we're on our way to Mexico. No, I've got to have it. I've got to have it. So, okay, okay. So I start edging that way, and I get about two lanes away from him, and we can see a um, sign on the side of his car door with his phone number on it. So Roz gets out her phone, tee, 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 calls me, and the guy says, hello, and she goes, hi, I want Jerry. And the guy goes, who is this? And Roz says, look to your left. And so he looked over and looking around. We have our peace sign figures sticking out of the windows. It's us, it's us, we want Jerry. And the guy goes, well, I just got back from a show. And he, Ross says, uh, i got a pen. I've got my credit card right here. And so he went, okay, how much is it? I can't forget it was overpriced, I think. <laughs> but uh, we right then and there gave him our credit card number. And he said, it'll be right, waiting on the porch when you get home. And uh, sure enough, we got back the next March, and Jerry Garcia is standing on our front porch with a handful of marijuana joints. I love this. Yeah, story. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, quite an experience. And he's 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 a great fit though for the. For, he is for, for Purple Haze. Yeah. Heck yeah. Purple. Heck yeah. So, when you're not tending lavender, mm-hmm. what do you guys like to do in Washington State for to get away from it all for fun, relaxation? What, what sort of activities do you like? Well, I'm kind of monoed. Uh, Roz loves the outdoors, thankfully. She loves the outdoors. So we fish a lot. Uh, my joints, my artificial parts won't let me hike a lot. But I love the the fact that we live in Washington, uh, where I can go right out here in the Straits of Juan if you can catch salmon and halibut of like a mile from my house, Prince Quim Bay. Um, we also love Eastern Washington. I was a park ranger at Lake Chelan, so I know all 55 miles of that lake intimately. And uh, our favorite lake probably in the state is Banks Lake. Okay. I was a ranger over at Sun Lakes for four years, almost four years, and um, spent a lot of time on Banks Lake. And the, the visuals there are oh, so rewarding. I mean, takes your breath away. Very Different. Very different. When you go there, we had a, 
you didn't know this, but earlier earlier episode we had a Nick Zentner on, who's a, a geologist professor okay. at, at Central Washington University. Oh, okay. And Nick does a show called Nick on the Rocks. Oh, really? He's I would have never thought rocks to be interesting, right? Oh okay. man! No, this guy. If if you haven't listened to him, yeah, you go listen to this okay. guy. Go watch his talks. He makes geology fascinating. Fun. Well, one of my questions was Banks Lake because yeah. to me it just seems so out of place. Yeah, and he kind of did the whole Missoula floods thing. Oh yeah, anyway, the great we, flood. we won't hijack this too much, but yeah. but Banks Lake is to me an uh, geologically place. geologically. Uh, we we usually stay right up around Steamboat Rock. That's that mm-hmm. huge monolith in the middle of the lake, and it's a state park also. But uh, the resources there. I'm an outdoors guy, so hunting and fishing has been my lifestyle for 74 years. Um, in fact, we're talking about going over there as soon as I get rid of you. Okay. <laughs> no, uh, uh, in the next few days, as soon as the weather settles down a little bit. Um, we love to spend. We just had a boat made. Um, we're looking forward to retirement. Uh, Washington State just has so much to offer. You know, you don't have to go too far. Oh, it's a fun place. How about uh, where's a good place to eat in the general squim area that the people might not have heard of before? Might not have heard of. Um, well, the dockside at John Wayne Marina is outstanding. Okay. Uh, the Alder Creek, uh, the Alderwood Bistro. Kind of tucked back away. Hard to find, actually. Okay. Top notch. All right. Um, uh, Tedesco's Italian is, is fairly new, about a year old. And right next to it is called a place called the Salty Girls. Hard to see, really, but their seafood is, if you like oysters and clams and crabs, it's the best. It's right right out of the water. Okay. Um, so there are there are some real top notch restaurants in town. I always like to. I always ask that for um, whenever I travel. My goal is to never eat at some place that I can eat at home. Uh huh. That's the goal. Uh huh. But the only thing that I break on that goal is I'll go to Starbucks. Uh huh. Uh, I prefer not to, but uh-huh. Starbucks is the one place I'll go to get a cup of coffee because I like coffee. Yeah. That I. But I always I always want to try the local coffee. Where can I eat? Sure. Wherever we travel, where, sure. where can I eat? So I always sure. ask that question of everybody. Sure. Because it's, I get some great answers. Well, Salty Girls has the best chowder I've ever eaten. Okay. Bingo. I'm okay. telling you. Okay. Uh, it is just, and and they offer a platter of a variety of oysters cooked five different ways. Oh. Broiled five different ways with five different sauces on them. Oh. Okay. It's it's if you like oysters. I do. Whee! I do. It's really good. Well, we'll wrap this up with okay. last thing is your chance. Where can people find out more about you? Find your products. Um, sure. Make sure we get the address to the store. Sure. And maybe the website address and so sure. people can take a look. Sure, sure. Well, we're all over the internet. I don't think you'll have trouble finding Purple Haze Lavender. And that and that's our web that's our web address is www.purplehazelavender.com. Um, we're in all of the upscale thriftways in Seattle, Marlene's Markets. Um, we're in all the local places, but uh, we're probably in hundreds of stores across the United States now with our product line. Um, our downtown uh, store is open. All year long, 127 West Washington, 
it's impossible not to find. It's right there on the main strip. Um, we're, there, we're the oldest tenant there, and uh, um, a lot of foot traffic comes in and out of there all the time. Um, but uh, we're just real fortunate to have to have uh, jumped on this early on, and uh, and the the people just keep taking care of us. Well, thank you very much for your hospitality here at your home. No I'm problem. Very buddy. grateful, uh, especially for your patience and your wife's <laughs> ingenuity. So uh, we're going to close this episode, folks. Thanks for listening, and we hope uh, you listen to us next episode. Take care. Join us next time for another episode of the Exploring Washington State podcast. 